Several years ago, a movie came out. Many of you may have seen it, if you have children. Uh, it's called Toy, Toy Story. There's been, I think, four of them now. So, but the first one, um, if you remember, you've seen it. If you haven't seen it, there's two main characters, Woody and Buzz. And both of them are toys. Well, part of the story, uh, part of the, the whole feel of the story is that when humans aren't watching, the, the, the toys come to life. And they interact, they do things that you would think they would do. So forth. But Buzz, when he enters into the story, um, he actually thinks he is the spaceman that his toy represents. He's a little confused. And a lot of the story is, is him coming to terms with the reality of who he, in fact, is. And there's a key point in the story where he realizes that he's a toy. And initially, he's frustrated, upset, saddened by it. Makes a statement, I'm just a toy. But then Woody offers him some words of encouragement telling him what a great toy he is and how meaningful he is to Andy, who is the little boy who owns the toys. And Buzz takes a look at the bottom of his foot, and on the bottom of his foot is written the name Andy. And suddenly, Buzz has new meaning, new understanding about his life, new perspective on who he is and what he should be and the importance he can play in this little boy's life. And uh, the story plays out from there. Today we, we move to the doctrine of creation. And it is a doctrine that has largely come under attack from a variety of different angles. But it is a doctrine that is very important. Because it's in this doctrine that we too can have what I like to call a Buzz Lightyear moment. Where we can realize our importance, our role in this world, our place in this world, because of who we belong to. Because of whose name is written on us. Because he made us. And he made us special. So I want to look at Genesis 1 and 2 this morning. Through the lens of knowing who God is and knowing who we are. Because I believe that is in fact at the heart of what these two chapters are trying to communicate. I don't believe, and I know many of you would disagree with this statement, and that's fine. We are, we are free to have some level of disagreement on particulars. I don't believe that the, the, the text is trying to outline a specific methodology of, worship, of uh, creation. I think if we, get, if we go that direction, we have some real conflicts between Genesis 1 and 2. I think if you're going that route, you have almost an incompatibility between the two chapters. And I don't believe the Bible is incompatible in any way or contradictory in any way. I believe the Bible is in full agreement from Genesis through Revelation. 
I believe instead that Genesis 1 and 2 are meant primarily to tell us more about who God is and who we are than a specific methodology of exactly how it all played out. But I do believe it is important as part of the doctrine that we do believe that God is the creator and creator alone. We'll talk more about that here in a minute. But I want to say that right here at the outset to, to just uh, perhaps lay any fears you may have that I'm one of those who denies creation and so forth. Nothing could be further from the truth. I believe God did it. I believe God did it all by himself. But I believe Moses is trying to set a stage here. He's trying to create a mindset here about who God is and who we are. And it all begins with verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, there's some amount of discussion out there as to exactly how verse 1 relates to the rest of chapter 1. Some have argued that it's a, it's a title, that Moses hears, he's saying, okay, here's the title, and then beginning in verse 2, he gives you more of the details. The difficulty I find with that is if that's the case, then you have no origin for the earth in verse 2. It's just there. If verse 1 is just a title, and the narrative or the story or however you want to tell it begins in verse 2, then we have no comment on where the earth actually came from. Instead, I believe that verse 1 is the first act of creation, where God creates matter, existence, all those sorts of things. And that what we're going to see in the rest of verse 1 is him bringing order to that. We'll talk more about that here in a second. But I want to point out something here that's not readily visible in English. I generally don't like to bring in Hebrew and Greek unless it really, I think, adds something to the text uh, that's not readily visible in the English. But one of the realities here is, is, like, is Hebrew is like a lot of foreign languages. If you know foreign languages, then you generally know that in most languages, unlike English, the verb generally precedes the noun. You have the, the, the verb, and then you have the noun, and then you're supposed to put the, the noun before it. Hebrew is like that, as are most languages outside of English. And so, technically it would say, if we were just to read cross, it would say, in the beginning he created, and then it would say, who it is that did the creating God. Not that he created God, but God is the creator just as we have it. But why I point that out, why this is important, is that in Hebrew, there are these markings, these accents, if you will, that are not just applied to words, but they're applied to sentences. Sentences have accents in Hebrew, not just words. And what these... Accents are meant to do, what this particular accent is meant to do is to highlight, to emphasize the main point of sentence. And where the accent falls in this particular 
verse in this particular sentence is on the word God. In the Hebrew, as you read this, the, 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 the symbols and, and uh, the things there tell you to, to pause, to stop, to meditate on, to think about God. And I think that is a significant reflection about what the Bible itself is about. That as we read all the text from Genesis through Revelation, our first question, our continuing question, our final question should be, what does this text tell me about God? Because it is his revelation of himself to us. It is a communication of his nature, of his purpose, of his place. And no place is that more evident than right here in Genesis 1 and 2 with this creation passage. A.W. Tozer said, We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. What he's saying there is that how you view God will shape everything else you do in your life. It'll shape your interactions with people. It'll shape your interactions in church. It'll shape your, the decisions you make, the attitudes you have, the outcomes that you pursue. And so it is incumbent, it is important, it is significant to have a correct view of God because if you don't, you're going to walk down a path, you're going to pursue relationships, you're going to pursue activities that are not in your best interest, that are not in your best outcome, that are not going to lead you in a direction that is healthy and helpful and significant. You have to understand who God is if you're going to live life correctly, appropriately, successfully in this world, in this time. Because it, that image, that idea, that concept will direct everything you do. And so I think part of what Moses is doing here in this passage is he's trying to outline for us who our God is. And the first thing he tells us is that our God is the omnipotent creator. He's the omnipotent creator. Now, there is a very important word, and you've probably heard it if you've ever heard any kind of discussions of this passage and so forth. There's a very important word that's used six times in this chapter. It's, it's the word bara, B-A-R-A. It's the word that is translated create. And it is a significant word because of what it tells us, what it communicates to us about who God is. Because throughout the Hebrew Bible, whenever this word is used, and it's not just used here in Genesis, it's used in Psalms, it's used in, in some of our narrative passages as well, but whenever it is used, the only subject of this verb is God. He's the only one who can bara. He's the only one who can create. 
man can form, man can shape, man can build, but we can't create. Now again, it's important for us to, to, to understand, it's important for us to realize that that we're not talking about a specific methodology. A lot of people want to take from this a creation out of nothing concept. Creatio ex nihilo is what you usually hear from Latin. Because they like to throw out those Latin terms whenever we can, don't we? But it just means creation out of nothing. But you have a real issue. Again, if you're trying to outline a specific methodology, between Genesis 1 and 2, if that's what you try to do. Because, for instance, in verse 26, and especially verse 27, it says, God created bara, man. He created him, bara again. He created them, bara again. It's three times the word bara is applied to man there. But was man created out of nothing? Verse chapter 2 tells us what? He was formed from the clay. He was shaped from the earth, and then God breathed life into him. So we can't say create in and of itself means creation out of nothing. Now ultimately we would say that's part of what's going on there in verse 1. Nothing was there before, and now all the stuff is. So we could say nothing existed before God created it, John 1 says that. But we need to understand the emphasis in this particular text is what? It's not the creation out of nothing that's really the emphasis here. The emphasis here is that God alone deserves the credit for the created order, for the created reality that we see. He didn't get any help anywhere else. He didn't call in for assistance. He didn't use things that were kind of already there. He, in his own imagination, in his own creativity, in his own mindset, envisioned what was there and made it happen. Blaise Pascal once said, the greatest single distinguishing feature of the omnipotence of God is that our imagination gets lost when thinking about it. When you think about the power of God, when you just stop, for just a moment to start to contemplate how powerful he is. We sang how great thou art a little bit earlier. And it's a powerful song. Why is it a powerful song? Because the whole song is built around contemplating the power of God. And when you... Sing about something that powerful, that amazing, that wonderful, that mind-blowing. Then the song itself is going to be powerful too. And when you stop to contemplate the variety of creation, the immensity of creation, you get lost in how big God is how great he is, how powerful he is, how awesome God is. So that's why 
he starts with, Moses starts with that in the beginning, God created. He did it. He did something no one else could do. And it was big. And it was magnificent. Which tells us what? That our God is big. And our God is magnificent. Second thing the passage tells us or highlights us to us is that our God is the sovereign Lord of the universe. I want to draw your attention down to verse 16. It says, God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day, the lesser light to rule over the night, as well as the stars. You ever found that passage just a little odd? Just a little? Why does Moses choose to call the sun and the moon greater light and lesser light? He doesn't refer to them as sun and moon. We know he had those words at his disposal. He uses them elsewhere in the Pentateuch. And yet here he doesn't say, God created the sun to rule the day and the moon to rule the night. He says he created the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. Well, I think the reason's actually kind of simple and ingenious at the same time. The word for sun is shemesh in Hebrew. You've probably come across the name Beth Shemesh a few times in reading through the Old Testament. It's a town that was present there in that, in that place. It means the house of the sun. The word for moon is Uraic. You come across that when you, whenever you read in the book of Joshua that Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Jericho the city of the moon. Now, why were those two pagan cities named Beth Shemesh and Jericho? Because they were named after the sun and moon god that those pagans worshipped. The house of Shemesh, the house of the god Shemesh, the sun god. Jericho, the city of the moon, the city of the moon god. So knowing that, knowing the world that Moses lived in and so forth, the people who we know from biblical stories over and over again, they what? They struggled with worshiping other gods. It was a constant temptation for them. They were constantly struggling with this reality. The prophets over and over and over again come and say, stop this foolishness. There's only one God. That's the world they lived in. That's the world Moses lived in. So Moses here is writing, and he's, he's, he's telling of the creation. He's telling how everything that you see came from God. Obviously, he's going to want to acknowledge that God created the sun, the moon, the stars. You can't get away from that. They're significant features of creation. But if 
Moses says, God created Shemesh, the sun, to rule the day, and God created Uraic, the moon, to rule the night. How is his audience going to hear that? That God has made these sub-gods. That's how they're going to hear it. They're, going to, they're not going to hear sun and moon. They're going to hear the god Shemesh and the god Uraic. And Moses wants to make clear right here at the beginning that there is no god but the god. One scholar put it this way. He doesn't want to even give other gods honorable mention in his narrative. And so instead of using those words that can be confused for names of gods, he says greater light and lesser lights. They're just lights. They're just stuff. They're not gods. They're objects. They're lifeless. Put in the heavens by God himself to give us direction, to give us order, to give us time. He goes on to say. You also get a sense of God's sovereignty with the repeated phrase, let there be. Verse 3, 6, 9, 11, 14, 15, 20, 22, 24, 26. You have this refrain, let there be. And when God says, let there be, what happens? There is. There is an authority. There is a clear authority. There is a clear power to his name. There is a sovereignty there. He speaks and creation responds. It does what it's told. But I love, I love that in revealing this to to Moses in relaying this to Moses and communicating this to Moses that he causes Moses to use a verbal form that while it is a command of uh, as such it's it's what what we call evocative or a permissive command okay he didn't say exist to his creation he said, I would like you to exist. Will you respond? In other words, the command here is not in, I don't want to get too much into grammar, it's not in the imperative, it's in the vocative. It's an invitation. There's something glorious about that. That God in his Sovereignty in his power, in his absolute authority. God could have just said, exist, and creation would have had to exist. He could have imposed himself that way. He has every right to. He is God. He is sovereign. He is in control. But instead, in his interactions with creation, he invites. I am sovereign Lord, he says but I'm not going to impose myself as a tyrant over you. I'm going to invite you to participate in this relationship, in this reality. And before the fall, 
creation responds without hesitation. From the earth itself, moon, the stars, to humanity, everybody responds to his sovereignty. Everybody acknowledges, everything acknowledges his right to rule because he is the sovereign Lord of the universe. And so we see in these, in these passages, in these expressions, his control, his absolute control, his, his sole position, his sole authority. No one, sh he shares his authority with no one. Just as he didn't create with the help of anybody else, he doesn't rule with the help of anybody else. He is in control. He is the authority. And yet he invites us to participate. The third thing is that he is the perfect provider for his own. This is outlined simply in the days of creation. I pointed this out before, but just to recommunicate it, especially if you weren't here. Notice the days of creation. Day one, he creates light. Day two, he creates the sky and the sea. Day three, he creates the land and the vegetation. Those are the three spheres of existence. That's the three locations, the three places of habitation, if you will. Light, the sky and the seas, and the land. Then day four, he creates what? The sun, the moon, and the stars. Day four corresponds to day one. Light is the place of habitation. Day four, sun, moon, stars are the inhabitants of that creation. Day five, he creates what? The fish, the birds. Corresponds to day two. Day two is the sea and the skies. Day five is the, the inhabitants, the fish, the birds. Day six, he creates what? The land animals and humanity corresponds to day three, which is the land and the vegetation. You see this, this parallelism. This is Hebrew poetry. This is the way Hebrew does things. He outlines the places, the habitations, then the inhabitants. What's he saying there? He's saying simply that God has always and will always make provision for his creation. He does not put a requirement, a, a call, a challenge on his creation that he has not already made provision for. Hudson Taylor once said, depend on it. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. When we do things the way God would have us do them, when we are obedient to his leadership, to his authority, to his position, then he will, in fact, provide what we need to carry that out. He will empower us. He will give us strength in the midst of the hardships. He will give us encouragement in the midst of loss and grief and sorrow. He will give us provision and, and meet our needs in the, in, in the midst of just daily life. That's who our God is. That's who he's always been. That's how he's presented here in Genesis 1. That's how he's presented 
in the book of Revelation. He provides for his people. And fourth, our God is the consummate communicator. I've told you before that when you're interpreting Scripture, always look at the verbs, especially in the narratives. Always, always, always look at the verbs. That's where the key is going to be. That's where the importance is going to be. That's where the emphasis is going to be. And when you look at Genesis 1 and 2, especially Genesis 1, the, key, the, the most numerous verb are not verbs about creation. They're there. They're important. I've already highlighted that. But the word creates only found six times among four verses. The word make eight times among five verses. But you know what the number one verb is? To say. Speak. Throughout this entire section, you read over and over again, then God said, or God commanded. Why is that important? Because Moses wants his people to understand. He wants us to understand that our God is not a hidden God. He's a God who speaks. He's a God who communicates. God is not one of those who just throws everything out there and says, okay, y'all are on your own. When God created, he spoke to, he related to, he walked with his creation, and he continues to do so. We have the scriptures themselves because God has chosen to speak to us. But are we listening? There's an old story of a man who was having difficulty communicating with his wife. And he concluded that she was becoming hard of hearing, so he decided he would conduct a test without her knowing about it. One evening, he sat in a chair on the far side of his room. Her back was to him, and she could not see him. And very quietly, he whispered, Can you hear me? And there was no response. So he got up and he moved a little closer and he asked again, can you hear me now? Still no response. Quietly he edged closer and whispered the same words, but still no answer. Finally he moved right up to behind her chair and said, can you hear me now? And to his surprise and chagrin, she responded with irritation in her voice. For the fourth time, yes. A lot of times, we think God's not listening to us. We have our own plans, our own ways of doing things, our own ways of trying to figure things out. and So we throw those at God and say, God, we want you to do things our way. And we fail to listen. We fail to hear. And we end up saying to ourselves, well, God just doesn't listen to us. He just doesn't pay attention to us. When in fact, God listens very well. It's us that are not listening.
God is awesome. The omnipotent creator, the sovereign Lord, the perfect provider, the consummate communicator. He fulfills all those roles and more in ways beyond our imagination. And that reality, that truth, that capacity for him to completely overwhelm our categories, our mindset, our perspectives, our, our, our understandings is truly the starting point of worship. Why do we worship God? Because he is worthy. There's no one like him. There's no one that can overwhelm us like he can. And because of who he is, that makes it important what he says about who we are, too. What does the passage here tell us about who we are? Just real quickly. Number one, we're his special creation. In verse 27, I've already alluded, alluded to it. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That all-important word, bara, is applied three times to humanity here. It's only used six times in the entire chapter. Three of them are right here in this single verse. You think God's trying to say something about how special we are, how important we are, how significant we are? I think that's inescapable. When God got ready to make creation, as, as the flow of the, the, the story goes, it's almost as if he gets to this point and he just says, Stop! Pay attention! I'm about to do something that's unimaginable! Something that's beyond belief, something that's beyond comprehension. I'm going to make something in my image. All this other stuff is great. It's beautiful. Stars, the plants, the flowers, the animals, they're all great. They're amazing. You ever stood at, at, a, at a powerful waterfall and just think, wow. Just the power of that, just the beauty of that, the majesty of that, of that waterfall or those mountains or whatever. They're, they're glorious. You go out in the night sky, you look up at the stars, and it's just amazing what you can see sometimes. What our telescopes are picking up all over the, the universe, the, the galaxy, not the universe, the galaxy. All of that pales in comparison to you. That's what God's trying to say here. All the other stuff, he said, let it be and it happened. Here he says, I'm going to make something in my image. Something that will remind them of me. There is nothing, no reality more damaging to the spirit of man than the thought that we are just accidents. We're not. We are special creations made in the image of the sovereign God. That is mind-blowing. 
Second, we are his responsible stewards. In verse 28, it says, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the, every living thing that moves on the earth. God put us in charge. Now understand, that's not his permission to go and do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want. Imagine yourself as a parent, and you're getting ready to take a trip. You have a 16, 17, 18-year-old, something like that in the house. And as you're walking out the door, you say to your child, the house is yours. You go off on your trip. Now, in your wildest imagination, you are not telling them, number one, you're certainly not telling them they can sell the house. You're not telling them they can destroy the house. I don't really like this wall here. Mom and Dad always thought it was kind of important, but I don't really like this wall, so I'm just going to tear that wall out. You're telling them what? Take care of my house. While I'm gone, you watch over it, you care for it, you make sure nothing happens to it. That's what you mean by that sentence, and that's what God means Reserved. Now, God's not gone, but at the same time, he has given us stewardship, responsibility of his creation. We are called to take care of it, to treat it correctly, mindful that ultimately it is his, not ours. Third, we are image bearers. Now, like a lot of things in Scripture, this is one of those things that's debated. What exactly does Moses mean? What does God mean when he says we're created in his image? There are lots of different ways you can understand the image. Some very good ones as possibilities. But what they all, all boil down to is simply this. We were made for a relationship with God, a special relationship with God. And we were made for a special relationship with each other. To be created in God's image is to understand that we owe ourselves, our existence, our attitudes about ourselves to someone bigger. G.C. Lichtenberg said, God created man in his own image, says the Bible. But the philosophy of this world today reverses the process and says that we create God in our image. And if you look at the man-made religions, if you look at the philosophy of the world, if you look at the attitudes and mindsets of so many people out there today, it's driven by the fact that they have created a God in their image, the way they would want him to be instead of the way he in fact is. So sin becomes permissible. Rebellion becomes defined as right. And we go our own way, thinking that it's all good. 
But to be an image bearer is to be somebody who relates to God, who walks with God, who listens to God, who submits to God, who reflects God. What does an image do? An image gives you a picture of what that other thing is. If I draw an image of a book, if I've done my job correctly, you'll know what a book is by looking at that image. When God created us in his image, if we are doing what we're supposed to do, then what? We will know in some ways what God looks like by looking at us. We're not gods, not even little gods, as some preachers throw out there. But we are meant to portray him, reveal him, reflect him. But when you look around, you realize the truth is that we are not where we began. Humanity is not where we were intended to be. We don't have relationships the way we should. We don't reflect God the way we should. Why? Because the fall happened. Our rebellion happened. We rejected God's way and God's will and God's desires. He invited us and we said, no, we're going to go our own way. In some ways, everyone on the earth is his, but not in the ways that really matter. Fortunately, God didn't leave us in the new paradigm, in the new reality, in the new mindset. He made a plan. He made a Response. Scripture says it was made even before we fell. Our resistance was met by his resolve in the person of Jesus, in the cross that he died on. The invitation that God makes is simply. Come meet that God that's revealed in Genesis 1 and 2. Understand yourself through the lens of who you were made to be, not who you think you are. Respond to his invitation of salvation, to the sacrifice that was made, to restore the relationship, to restore our status to the place we were intended to be to the people we were intended to be. Worship God because he alone is worthy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. I thank you for this day. I thank you for these people. God, I pray that you would move in our hearts and minds today. That you would help us to understand more clearly who you made us to be. You'd help us to see the impact of the fall of our own sins, of our own failures on our relationship with you and to be responsive to what you're trying to teach us and direct us to understand.
Help us to be obedient, God. Help us to be responsive. In Christ's name, amen.